as you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I live right here in this neighborhood, Arlington Woods, right beside the church. And um, the, you might be surprised at how large the neighborhood is. It kind of sprawls back in there. And there's a house back there that has been abandoned for several years now. It sits on a corner. And it was always a little bit overgrown, I think, while the gentleman lived there. I think he was in declining health. But he passed away, and the house has just sat there ever since. And so you can't even see the house at this point. All of the, the weeds and the trees and the bushes, everything has just grown out of control. And so if you went by there, you wouldn't see the house really unless you could just catch a peek here or there. You see all that overgrowth. If you could see the house, you kind of imagine, just try to picture what that house might look like after years of just neglect, how there might be rotten boards and animals may have busted in and taken up residence, who knows, spider webs everywhere. Imagine your own house, if you did nothing to maintain it for years, what condition it would be in. You know, if, if you just go out of town for a week vacation, you come back and it almost seems like a haunted house, it seems just kind of eerily dead inside. Now, imagine that for some reason you wanted, to, you wanted to move closer to where your church family meets maybe and so you purchased that house. It's a great deal because it's been left uncared for for so long and that's your house now and you're moving in. Think through what you will need to do to get that house up to speed to be livable. Now let's just, let's just say for some reason the, the details of the sale are that you have to move in immediately. Before you have time to renovate and all that, you, just got, you have to move in, and you're going to have to renovate while you're living there. So I guess first step would be hacking your way to the house through all the overgrowth so that you can access it. And then you'll have to gain entry, and you'll have to shore up the, the locks and the windows because maybe they're busted, get some things replaced so that the house is secure, start replacing rotten wood, Roof would probably need to be replaced. It sat there for so long. Gutters will need to be cleaned out, maybe replaced. Painting, painting, and more painting will need to happen. Over time, though, this house will begin to come alive. It will begin to be transformed. That's kind of a picture of what God does for the new Christian. The Bible refers to a new Christian is a a new birth. It's a a new life has begun. And that new Christian receives the Holy Spirit. God's own spirit comes to live in the new Christian like you go to live in this house. And once inside, the, the renovation project begins. It continues for the rest of your life on earth. The Holy Spirit working out your new life in Christ in the practical details. One of the things he does, he does all kinds of stuff for us. He convicts us of sin so that we're sensitive when we trespass God's rules. He enables us to turn from our sin. He enables us to live the new life. He stirs new affections and desires in us. He empowers us to be Christians. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And one of the coolest things he does is he gifts you to serve in the church. That word gift is what the Bible uses to describe it. They call them spiritual gifts. It's ways in which you're enabled supernaturally to serve as part of the church by the Holy Spirit who's living within you. For some, it might be teaching. For some, it might be just helpfulness. 
For some, it might be administration. For some, it might be preaching. It's different things given to each each individual one of you so that you can serve as part of the church. So if you're a Christian, you have this. You have the Holy Spirit gifting you to serve as part of the church. And God's called us to all these awesome things together, and we get to do great things together by this Holy Spirit power. We help each other trust in Jesus together. We encourage each other's faith. We help each other follow Jesus and obey him. We worship together, worship the one true God. We serve our neighbors together by this power. We spread the gospel and make disciples together by this power. All these things, which you could just put in the umbrella category of ministry, we get to do because the Holy Spirit gifts us to do it. It's great. It's awesome. That's part of the good news. It's so good. But there's something dangerous about it, too. There's danger here. And it's a danger that you may not have thought about. So I'm really excited about this passage because I think it might be something that you maybe haven't thought about. The danger in all of this is you can accidentally begin to love ministry more than people. You can accidentally love ministry more than people. The more you get caught up into what God's doing in the world and how he's empowered you to be a part of it, and it's so awesome because what we deserve is damnation. We deserve to be punished for our sin, but instead we get to work on this great big project God has. And we can, and Christians have and do, begin to love ministry more than people. Now you say, well, those are one and the same, aren't they? Love and ministry, aren't they the same thing? Well, not exactly. Now, I don't think you can love people as a Christian without ministering to them. But I do think you can minister to people without loving them. And I think that happens a lot. And it displeases God. Okay, quiz time. Do you guys remember the first two commandments? When Jesus summed up the, the, all the commandments in the Old Testament, he summed them up in, into just two And you can actually respond. We're a small group this morning, holiday weekend, it's casual. What's the number one commandment? (laughs) All right. We got it. Love God. And then some were quoting the whole thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him with the entirety of who you are. That's the number one thing you're called to do. And then the number two thing is minister to people. Is that right? No, not exactly. What is the number two thing? Love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're going to be ministering to them. But we humans have a tricky way of slipping out of what God's called us to do because it's actually hard, not just hard, it's actually impossible without the Holy Spirit enabling us to do it. So we figured out, well, I can just sort of ignore that love thing, and I can just minister to people. And God's people have done that a lot throughout their history, and we don't want to do that. So chapter 13 is all about correcting that. The Corinthian Christians had a real issue with this, and Paul's trying to correct it. He's trying to remind them how awesome love is, what love is, And get them to refocus on loving one another. 
And today we've got the last paragraph, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. Today, his, his last point in this, these three paragraphs is that love lasts in a way that ministry does not. Love lasts in a way that ministry does not. Let's flesh this out a little bit. We'll read verses 8 through 10 to start. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. This is one of the spiritual gifted ministries that the Corinthians enjoyed. This is speaking God's words to God's people. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Tongues is another one of these spiritually gifted ministries that the Corinthians enjoyed. Uh, Speaking in tongues is speaking in a language that you don't even know in order to convey the gospel to people. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Knowledge is listed as another spiritual gift. Some people are divinely enabled to know well. They're able to learn and understand well God's word. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Prophecy and tongues and knowledge will pass away and cease in a way that love will not. It says we prophesy in part and we know in part. That language means piece by piece. We prophesy and we know bit by bit, piece by piece. It's sort of the language of putting a puzzle together. You know, if you've ever lingered over a puzzle, you've uh, imagine you're doing it without a picture even to work from. You've just got the puzzle pieces and you're just you're figuring it out bit by bit, piece by piece. That's sort of what this language conjures up in, in the mind. When the perfect comes, or when completion comes, or wholeness, when wholeness comes, the partial will pass away. Once the puzzle is complete, the piece by piece work ends. Now that when perfect comes, he doesn't elaborate here, but from the context it seems clear he's referring to when Jesus returns. When Jesus Christ returns and brings his kingdom into full effect, all this partial ministry will in some sense pass away. Now this is a little confusing and thankfully Paul gives us two images to help us understand it. The first image is of childhood, and the second one is of a mirror. So let's read those together, starting at verse 11, to help us understand what he's talking about, how it is that love lasts in a way that ministry doesn't. He says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So let's think about that image first before we look at the other one. When we were children, we spoke like children. You all did, maybe not Isaac Walsh. Isaac may be the one person who was probably born speaking like Shakespeare. Most of us, when we were children, spoke like children. 
I was thinking about my kids. We've always loved the things our kids said when they were little kids. One of our favorite Lillianisms when she was little, if she was uh, feeling under the weather or had been sick within like a month of something that she didn't want to do or something that she wanted, she would use her sickness to try to get her way a little bit. And I think we've all been there. And she would just say a simple two-word phrase, I sick. Like she wanted to watch more TV than we wanted her to watch. And she would just remind us, I sick. Meaning, I think you need to let me do this. I sick. One of uh, the ones that stands out for me for Elias this is an Eliasism. He was a little, he was pretty creative with things he would say when he was little. I don't know how old he was, but he was sick. And we were trying to draw out from him what exactly he was feeling so we could figure out what to do for him. And I'm trying to remember it correctly here. I should have written it down, but uh, I remember he was sitting in his bed and, I, and we were sitting beside him asking him questions. And he said, I feel like snowmen in my mouth are jumping into the trash cans in my throat. And weirdly, I think I kind of knew what he meant by that. You know, when they, when they were little kids, they spoke like little kids. And they're growing up now, and, um, and they're going to put that away. They're not going to continue speaking like that. You know, it was appropriate and cute when they were little kids. If, if Lillian's 30, and she's at work, and she just wants to go home, and she goes to her boss and says, I'm sick. It's not going to have the same effect. When we were children, we spoke like children. But when we became adults, we gave up those childish ways. It's the same with our reasoning and our thinking as children. You know, when you were a child, you thought and reasoned like a child. It was appropriate. That's what you had to work with. When you played peekaboo with your parents, I think as a very young child, you probably actually thought that they went away. That they were gone for a moment and then reappeared. And so it was magical and delightful the way they could just disappear and reappear and disappear and reappear. But you know, as you became adult, you began to understand that they were just hiding behind that piece of paper or whatever it is. And as you became an adult, you gave up those childish ways of thinking and reasoning. And in that way, those things ceased. In that way, those things passed away. It's not that you stopped speaking. It's not that you stopped reasoning or that you stopped thinking. It's that you're doing it in a whole different way now because you have a whole different understanding now. And that's kind of the way these spiritual gifts in this ministry works. But there's another image that might help us a little bit further. Childhood can help explain it. Verse 12, the image of a mirror might help us understand it. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... When the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So mirrors back then would have been a polished metal. They didn't have mirrors like we have. It would have been some sort of polished metal. The nicest ones would have been bronze, and they would have worked pretty well. But you can imagine looking at yourself or even at someone else in a reflected polished metal surface. You can make them out and you can see some things about them, but it's nothing like seeing them face to face. And what Paul is saying is when we're doing this ministry now, we're doing it with this dim understanding of God and who he is. It's it's reflected through scripture. 
but it's not face-to-face. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, it'll be face-to-face, and then we'll know fully, and everything will change. Now, this brings all kinds of things to mind, all kinds of questions about the afterlife. Like, what does this mean about heaven? Will we not be learning? Will we know everything immediately? Will there not be ministry? Will, Will Matt be out of a job? There's all kinds of questions, and it's fascinating, but Paul doesn't elaborate on any of that here because that's not his point. He's not trying to to give in-depth teaching about what heaven's going to be like. His point is love lasts in a way that ministry doesn't. So now in verse 13, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So love's not the only thing that lasts in this way but it's the greatest of the things that last in this way. We can only minister in incomplete and imperfect ways. Our knowledge of God is like a child's knowledge of the world. It's a dim reflection compared to what it will be. But love never ends. It does not pass away. It doesn't cease. It stays. It remains. In other words, when we minister to people when when, like when i'm preaching right now what i'm doing i will one day come to look back on like child's play when christ returns if if it works this way if i'm able to look back over my ministry i will look at it as an adult looks back over their childhood we need not be proud or arrogant about our ministries we need to be very humble about them We understand so little of the mysteries of God, really. But when we love, we do something that's already whole and complete. When we love right now, we're already now, here and now, doing something that is whole and complete. When we love, we act mature now. When we love, we live as full kingdom citizens now. So love is, love is special. Love is different from, from acts of ministry. Although love will lead to acts of ministry, you can do acts of ministry without love, and when you do, it's empty and hollow. It doesn't please God. You know, the most mature ministry, when I, I was thinking about this, preparing for this, trying to think of a concrete example of, of what this love looks like, And it's an example I've used before. Some of you will remember. But when I think of one of the most mature acts of ministry that I've seen, because it was was ripe with with Christ-like love, it wasn't somebody behind a podium with an open Bible proclaiming truth, as important as this is. But it was at Walmart. When I was in a long line at the Walmart on Albemarle Road, waiting to return something after Christmas along with a dozen other people waiting to return something after Christmas. And it was taking forever. Man, it was taking forever. Have you ever been in a Walmart return line that was taking forever, along with other people who are noticing this is taking forever? And everybody's getting impatient, and people had their children. The children were rolling on the ground. Oh, I'm so hungry. I'm miserable. And, and moms were frustrated, and it, the tension was rising. 
And up at the front was this, this young woman, I don't know, maybe in her 20s, who was working this return desk. And she had one by one to face these irritable, irritated people trying to return stuff. Sometimes she could allow it. Sometimes she couldn't because of policy. Then they get even more mad. And then beside us was this elderly woman trying to get into one of those um, the, the buggies that runs on its own. I can't think of what it's called, but you know, you sit in and it propels itself because you, you're not able to walk and push a buggy. And she couldn't get in it. There was too much stuff. You had all the return carts there. It was just a, a mess of a scene. And this woman was in the way trying to get in this cart so she could go and she couldn't figure anything out. And the employee came around with so much grace and so much patience and so much gentleness and so much kindness and just slowly took her time helping this woman get what she needed to get so that she could get on this cart and get on her way. And the contrast between how patient and kind this woman was with how irritated all the rest of us was, was so stark. Now, I don't, I don't know for sure if she was a Christian, but what she was doing was living out verses 4 through 7 in a real-life situation. Love is patient and kind, Uh, It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful and so on. She was just living embodiment of it in the Walmart checkout line. That's who we're called to be in a world that is irritating and irritated and difficult and challenging and complicated and cluttered with mess. First and foremost, that's who we're called to be. We're called to love people like this. And then ministry will flow out of that. But we we need not dare try to move on into acts of ministry until God is making us into this. That's what maturity looks like. Let that be our measure of maturity. Not uh, how much you attend church or how many programs you're involved in, but are you loving with the love of Jesus Christ? That's what we want to see. Love lasts in a way that ministry doesn't. We're called and gifted for really great things as a church, and it's awesome. But we don't want to start with ministry. We want to start with love. We want to see the person and love the person. It's really as simple as that. Just see the person in front of you and love that person. That's your calling. All kinds of ministry will flow out of that. And we can love like this because we've been loved like this through Christ. And I'll I'll leave you with this. Uh, This is a story about elevation. You guys know elevation. It's a big old church. We're probably eventually going to be an Elevation Satellite Campus eventually. Um, I know we little churches view a big church like Elevation with some suspicion sometimes, and maybe some of that's well-founded. I don't know. I have never met Stephen Furtick. But they did something once that I really liked, and maybe we should do it here sometime. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was Elevation. But they distributed out to each of the people there in attendance, and each person got an envelope, and inside the envelope was cash. All different amounts of cash. One person might have got $1. One person might have got $250. And they just gave it all out to everybody. And they said, you've been given this gift for the purpose of using it to bless somebody else. And they sent them, they sent them out with these envelopes full of cash. They didn't walk in with those envelopes. They didn't do anything to earn the envelopes. They received them so that they could go out and give it to others. And I don't know how many people pocketed their cash I don't know how many people decided they would bless their spouse 
uh, with a two-person vacation or something. I don't know how people handled it. But it's such a good picture of our lives as Christians. God has given you this, this, this cross-shaped envelope full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and unconditional love and said, now you're, you are filthy rich with this love. Now go out and just give it out to everybody, especially your church family. That's where you begin. Just, it's yours to give away. What an awesome calling that is. May we go out with our envelopes this week and just give this love to everybody around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins through your son, Jesus Christ, cleaning us up, allowing us to be your people, and allowing us to take part in your work in the world. Let us not ever step over love into ministry. May we never minister in a loveless way. Or would you please transform our hearts so that we could love people like Jesus Christ loves people, like you've loved us through him. We ask this in his name. Amen.